Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this opportunity where we can gather as Your children, adopted sons and daughters by the blood of Jesus Christ, to just come before You and to worship You. Lord, as as Mark read that convicting passage of the prophet Jeremiah to Israel, I pray, Lord, that You protect us from that, that we never forsake You. Lord, that we, even in all of our doubts, our hard times, that we continue to turn to You and run towards the cross and run towards Your love. Lord, we just pray this morning that as we go through Your Word, Lord, I pray that it's Your Word being proclaimed. It's the Gospel truth. I pray we never compromise the Gospel based on culture, based on people, based on anything. I pray that we're always in tune with Your Word and Your Spirit. So I just pray that You just be with us this morning. Free us from distractions if we're tired, if we're anxious, if our mind is somewhere else. I pray that You bring us back here that we can hear your truth proclaimed. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to John chapter 7. John 7. We're going to be continuing our series and we're going to be finishing our series, really what we started last week. Last week we looked at Jesus going back to Jerusalem after spending time in Galilee and attending something called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And we learned that Jesus, halfway through this feast, halfway through this seven-day ceremony, or celebration rather, Jesus goes into the temple and He starts to teach. And the crowd once again is listening and they marvel at Jesus. And they're marveling at how this man, seemingly a no one, with no rabbinic training, with no studying of the law by not having anybody sort of mentoring him, how Jesus can preach and teach with such authority and know the Word of God. And then once again, we see in this that Jesus claims that everything He does, His teaching, His authority, it lines up with God's will. That His teaching is God's teaching. He seeks to glorify the Father, not bring Himself glory. And once again, we see from last week, that that listening crowd is again divided on who Jesus is. Is Jesus this good man? Is He really from God? Is He speaking the truth? Or some people on on the other side say, no, no, Jesus is a heretic. He needs to be silent. He needs to stop. He's from the devil. And we looked at that everybody in this room, everybody in the world is going to have to face this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is He the truth or is He a liar? Is he a man or is he God? Right? Each one of us have to face that. The world is going to have to face that. Jesus is clear that those who do not accept him, that don't follow him, will not have life. They do not know God and they're not a part of his family, a part of his fold. And this morning, like I said, we're going to be finishing looking at Jesus' time in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. And it is a lot of reading, but I didn't want to break it up into another third week and go through it. But I want to zoom in as we read the the rest of this story and focus on really three main points. If you have your notes, you could follow along, but we're going to see the authority of Jesus. We're going to see the promise of Jesus. And we're going to see the continued division on Jesus. So authority, promise, and division. And again, this chapter, as I said last week, it's going to be a turning point in John's Gospel. We're going to start to notice as we continue to read it that more and more people are going to become divided, 
but also turn against Jesus. There's going to be more hatred, more persecution, more plots to kill him, and actually attempts to take his life. And we're going to see that. And, and really, again, this is kind of this, this turning point in, in John's Gospel. To give a little bit of context, again, this feast that we're going to read and that we read last week, it takes place about September or October during the harvest time. But the next spring is going to be Passover, and that's when Jesus is to be crucified. So what we're reading here is about six months before Jesus' crucifixion. So number one, we're going to see the authority of Jesus. Let's pick up reading John chapter 7. Let's read at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So what we see here is Jesus is continuing his teaching and preaching openly in public, without any sort of hesitation. And it says that he's talking now, and the people listening are the people of Jerusalem. These aren't the pilgrim Jews, but, but rather the locals who are in Jerusalem. And they're astonished to hear the fact that Jesus is allowed to be doing what he's doing. That he's allowed to be speaking and no one's stopping him. And this thought crosses their mind and they actually verbalize and they say it. They say, well, maybe the leaders really know that he is the Messiah. And that's why they're not stopping him. And then they, they say a but. There's a but. But, verse 27 we know where this man, Jesus, that Jesus comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. It's interesting because I just did research on that, and it's not necessarily true. We know from the Advent season and Christmas time, we read from Micah chapter 2, even Matthew chapter 2, the story of the wise men, that according to the Old Testament, that Christ, the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. That Jesus is born in Bethlehem. However, as we'll see later in this passage, the Pharisees and the Jews alike assume that Jesus' birthplace is not Bethlehem, but they assume it to be Galilee because that's where Jesus grew up. Some of these Jews held to this very traditional belief of this mysterious nature and coming of the Messiah, that all of a sudden, one day, just this man that no one knows about is going to enter into the temple, and he's going to be the Messiah, and he's going to lead the rebellion against the Romans, and he's going to free the Israelites. But that's not necessarily what, what God's Word says. It contradicts that. And notice in verse 28, Jesus' response to this. He says this, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. He, physically, he's talking. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Let me say that again. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. Notice what Jesus just told this crowd. You don't know him. You don't know God. What a statement. As I'm reading that, I'm like, oh, 
That's, that's bold. That, that's to, to say that in front of a mob of people, the God that you worship, that you think you know, you don't really know Him. Right? I see the authoritative teaching and preaching of Jesus here that He demonstrates as He talks to the crowd. Last week we read that Jesus claims His teachings are from God, that He speaks truth because God is truth and He does the will of the Father. He also told the people last week that they're sinners, that no one holds up to the law. And now this week we read that he tells the crowd that they don't even know God. They don't know the truth. They might think they know where Jesus comes from physically, but spiritually they're clueless. And then we see this contrast from Jesus in verse 29. He says, I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. Jesus' claim is that he's heaven sent, that he is on a divine mission that he comes not from the earth, but he comes from where God is. And imagine the shocked faces of the religious leaders of the Jews that they don't know God. Because of this statement, it says in the next verse, they try, they try to arrest Jesus. But then it says, because his hour had not yet come, they failed to arrest him. They failed to silence him. Again, Jesus spoke with this full authority, this full truth, because he's doing the will of God. He came down not to glorify Himself, but to glorify the Father. Everything He did here on earth was to advance the kingdom of God. At the cross, sinners now have a way to be reconciled to our holy and perfect just God. We can have a personal relationship with the Creator of the world. And here's my question as I was just going through this. And it's a question for myself, but it's worth asking and just thinking about together. How are we doing in advancing the kingdom of God? both as a church, as New Village, but also individually. How are we doing? What does it look like to glorify God? Some of the simple kind of church answers, the stereotypical church answers, I, I just came up with some, how do we glorify God? What does it look like? Evangelism. right? That means telling others the truth of the Gospel, the promises of Jesus. Discipling others. And to be discipled. I've heard it preached, and I've heard it from many, many people, that every Christian in their life, every Christian should have both a Paul and a Timothy. Now, not literally someone named Paul and Timothy. Like, don't go searching for someone named Paul and Timothy. But more of a spiritual. On the one hand, you have a spiritual Paul, a, a sort of spiritual father, a mentor, who can disciple you. Someone who's more matured spiritually and can help you. And then on the other hand, you have a Timothy, that as you're growing, as you're building and growing deeper in your relationship with the Lord, that you now in turn are discipling someone who's less mature than you. Right, so always have a Paul and a Timothy. Another way we glorify God is serving the church. The church is called the Bride of Christ. To help our brothers and sisters in practical ways. Yes, in spiritual ways we can pray for them. Absolutely we should be. But also in practical ways. In literal ways real ways. Another way that we advance the kingdom of God to glorify God is to go out and to talk to people. This is scary. I'm going to be honest. This, this one is scary. Why? Because we get so comfortable in our own bubbles, in our own houses, in our own networks, in our own areas that we kind of create this bubble for ourselves and, and we, we don't leave it. But I want to say this, we need to go out and talk to people. It requires us to leave the safety, the comfort of our, of our comfort zones, of our homes, and to be vulnerable, but to be passionate about the Word of the Lord, about the Gospel of Jesus. 
So again, as we move to the second point now, we're going to keep this first one in our heads, in our minds. We're going to continue to see and look at Jesus' authority as we continue to read through this chapter. So number two, right? number one, we had the authority of Jesus. And then the second point we're going to look at is the promise of Jesus. Let's pick up at verse 32. So John 7, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go into the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So in these verses, we have the Pharisees, And the chief priests, also known as the Sadducees, they're these two religious leader groups that are constantly clashing in Jesus' time. They clash and they differ vastly on their theology and their doctrine. The Pharisees were more conservative. They're more to the letter of the law, letter of the Torah, where the Sadducees were liberal. Their hatred, both the Pharisees and Sadducees, their hatred of Jesus united them together. They hated Jesus more than they hated each other. So now they come together and they sent the temple officers. In that time period, yes, they were under Roman law, but the Jews could exercise authorities. The Pharisees and the religious leaders could exercise their own authority over their own people, especially when it came to spiritual matters. So both of these groups come together. Enemies become, well, not friends, but frenemies, I don't know. They come together to what? Silence Jesus. They send the the temple officials after him. And then we see that Jesus predicts his death, his resurrection, his ascension. That's verses 33 and 34. And if you want to, just as a note, this sounds very similar to what Jesus told his disciples at the end of John chapter 13 into John 14. Right? Where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm going to be leaving soon. And they say, where are you going? Well, let's continue reading, and we're going to see the promise of Jesus here in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, notice the time jump, right? He was in the middle of the feast, now the last day of the feast. The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So during the Feast of Booths, daily, every day, they had a water, I don't want to say ritual, but like a water ceremony. Each day, the high priest would go from the temple, he'd walk to the Pool of Siloam, he'd draw from it a pitcher or a big you know, vase of water, And then he would go back into the temple through the water gate. And as he goes through this gate, these three trumpets that were made from ram's horns, they'd blast and they'd sound these these loud trumpets. And it marked the joy of the special occasion of what was happening. The people would line up and shout and cry out Isaiah 12 verse 3, which says this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. At the temple, the priest would then march around the altar while the temple crowd would sing Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. The water was then poured over the altar as an offering to God. 
And what this special ceremony did was it reminded the Jews of what God had done for their ancestors. That during their wilderness wandering, that Moses struck the rock and water flowed out, and that that water fed the nation, it fed their cattle, and all could drink and be satisfied. That God continued to faithfully provide for their ancestors while they were wandering. And this is what is believed. It's believed that during this water ceremony, as this is happening, it's believed that Jesus cries this out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. As the priest is pouring that water over the altar. And here, with this, we see a twofold promise of Jesus. The first we see is that all who are thirsty are invited to come to Jesus and to drink. All are invited who are thirsty to come and drink. In Jesus, all of our spiritual thirst is quenched. That's his promise. He's enough to satisfy the longing desires of our heart. This past Wednesday, we we talked about how at creation, we were all created to worship. We were created with with a nature, with a heart to worship, and obviously to worship the Creator, God. But because of sin, right, our hearts now seek after other things to worship. And if there's anyone we worship besides God, there's a void. There's this constant void or struggle that cannot be fulfilled. That's why you have the book of Ecclesiastes, where you have the king trying to fill every desire from things of the earth. And his conclusion is this. Nothing, nothing is going to help except fearing the Lord and worshiping Him. Also with this, all who are thirsty are invited to Jesus and to come and drink from Him. There's a pastor that used this verse to show the full saving grace of Jesus. And I, and I like this, so I'm going to share it. He used the three words, thirst, come, and drink. So those who thirst are those who recognize their spiritual need. Those who recognize, wait a minute, I, something's not right. I, I, I'm a sinner. Wait, what's go- I, wait is there something, and something needs to happen. And then those who come are those who then approach Jesus after realizing their thirst. They come to Jesus, they come before Him, and they follow Him. And then the last are those who drink, those who have put their faith in Jesus and obey His Word. And in those three words that points to this full picture of salvation, that we need to know our thirst. We have to come to Jesus and we must drink to be satisfied. There's a little example, maybe this will help too. The example of the young rich ruler. That story might sound familiar, you might know about this. This is a man who came to Jesus who was what? Thirsty. He was thirsty. He asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? He's searching for the answer. And the thing is, he actually went he, before Jesus. He came to him. So that's number two. He was thirsty. He came to Jesus. And when Jesus gave him the answer, where sell all of your possessions and come and follow me, he was really talking about the idolatry in this man's heart, that he loved his possessions and wealth more than Jesus. The young rich ruler walks away sad. He's unable to drink. That's the third. Drink from what Jesus offered. So the first promise Jesus gives us is the gift to quench our thirsty souls. And we talked about that too at the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Yeah, John 4, sorry. And the next thing we see, right, that's the first promise. The next is we are promised living water. Living water, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes the promise that those who believe in him will have rivers of living water flowing out of their hearts. That's verse 38. And in that next verse, John tells us what Jesus is talking about. It's the Holy Spirit. 
If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Amen. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed, were stamped with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the moment we come to Christ, the moment that sinner becomes justified and is saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. And according to Jesus in John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit is called our Helper, our Comforter. He's known as the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit dwells within us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit gives us peace. How about this? The Holy Spirit is a He, not an It. The Holy Spirit is God. And all that is from John 14. And in that same chapter, John 14, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. Just take a moment to think about that truth. As He's sharing this with His disciples, as he's, He knows He's going to be crucified and be lifting and yielding up His Spirit and He's going to be in the tomb. Right? Jesus makes this promise that He's sending someone, a helper. The Holy Spirit will be with them forever. He's with us forever. And all of us this morning can rest on these promises Jesus will satisfy our thirst and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us forever if we are sons and daughters of God. So again, Jesus' dramatic declaration on the last day of the feast, it brings us to our final point. So we have the authority of Jesus, we have the promise of Jesus, and then number three, the continued division on Jesus. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? There is the misunderstanding of Jesus' birth, right? From Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Notice the, the different groups of people. Right? You have the first group are the people that he's con- they're convinced he's the prophet. And that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 18 by Moses, right? that someone better than Moses, someone better than, than me will come. Right? And that's what they're, they're clinging to, this, this hope that someone's going to come. Some people believe that he is Christ the Messiah, in the early first century, the Jews believed that the prophet and the Messiah were two different people. But after Jesus Christ, it's clear, one and the same. Some of the people, right, so he's the prophet, some think, no, he's the Christ, and then others think he's just a man. They think he's a man because Jesus fails two criteria. It really, Jesus fulfills both of them, but they're clueless to this. He must come from the offspring of David and come from Bethlehem. Again, Jesus did fulfill both of these requirements, but the people had a hardened heart and had no interest in investigating Jesus' messianic claims. They didn't care. Why? Because Jesus didn't fit the mold of the Messiah they wanted to come. And these verses, what we just read, this division that Jesus, or really the division of who Jesus is, 
it brings to light the time when Jesus claimed this in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, this is what Jesus said. Listen real quick. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his whole own household. The truth here is that the truth of who Jesus is divides people. Jesus, as he's teaching and preaching, the people are divided. He divides, Jesus does divide unbelievers from believers. When Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, he makes a clear statement. He's here for the sheep of his fold. He's here to separate the goats from his sheep. I heard someone say this, because of man's sinfulness in our own hearts, our own failing nature, our own unwillingness to repent and to bow to the Prince of Peace, that Jesus has become Christ the divider. And we clearly see it here in John's Gospel. And let's be honest, in the world today, the division of who Jesus is in the world. As we share the Gospel, don't be surprised by some of the responses we might get. Some people might listen. They might ask questions. Others might be offended and argue with you. Our job is to share the Gospel with everybody. And as I've been saying, let God do the rest. God changes hearts. David Moore does not change anybody's heart. God does. But as Christians, we're commanded and told to what? Tell and teach the gospel. In verse 44, it says, No one laid hands on him. This marks the third time since the feast started where the leaders failed to silence and arrest Jesus. And let's continue reading this in this last section. Verse 45. The officers, right, those temple guards that were sent by the Pharisees to go and arrest Jesus, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring them? Or sorry, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Let me stop here for a second. Notice what they didn't say. Right, as the temple officials were given a task, they failed their task. They didn't bring Jesus back. They didn't arrest him and bring him before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't say, well, you know, there were so many people there we couldn't get to him. Or we, we just lost him with the crowd. Or we were a little afraid because the crowd outnumbered us. No, what we see is that they're in awe of what Jesus was saying. They marvel. They said, no one speaks like this man. No one's ever spoke like him. And then in verse 47, we see the Pharisees' response. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, and to, sorry, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, being a Pharisee, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. In this section, I just want to highlight two failures of the Pharisees. Two failures. The first is that they condemn the Jewish crowd of not knowing the law, and they think of them as a curse. It's a very strong word that they use towards this crowd. Because the crowd might accept Jesus, but the Pharisees don't. 
And in that very next moment, Nicodemus then reminds the law keepers of the law. He asks them, doesn't our law require and allow for a, fail tri- tri- a, a, a fair trial for the accused? And he's, he's really from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16. This is the law of, the Lord, of God to the Israelites. This is what he says. And I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. So here, Nicodemus is reminding the self-appointed Pharisees, the guardians, or really the self-appointed guardians of the law, the leaders, that they're failing to keep their own law. He's calling out their hypocritical action, their hypocritical dealing with Jesus. As, as, as a response, they then throw an insult at Nicodemus, who's one of them, saying, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. There was a saying in the ancient Jewish time that said this, Nothing comes from Galilee. Right? You wouldn't be traveling and bragging like, Listen, I'm from Galilee. You better pave the way for me. Look out for me. I'm from Galilee. You would not want to admit that. People looked at you differently. There's also this sort of pride that, that the Jews that lived in Jerusalem had against those Jews who lived in Galilee. The Jews in Jerusalem thought they were better because they lived closer to the temple. They lived closer. Right? So we see the Pharisees are blinded by their anger. They're blinded by their self-righteousness. Not only do they insult Nicodemus, who's one of their own, as Jesus calls him in John chapter 3, the great teacher of Israel, right? They fail to keep their own law, but the second thing they fail to do is they must have forgotten their history. They say no prophet arises from Galilee. The prophet Jonah was from Galilee. It's also believed that Nahum and Hosea could have been from Galilee. There's speculation and good evidence of that. So you have the Pharisees who loved the law. They didn't want to follow it when when it came to Jesus. Their hatred of Jesus their hearts were so hardened against him that all they cared about was stopping him, from, for, to arrest him, to kill him. They didn't care about having a fair trial and hearing him out. Instead, they sought to silence him by any means they could. And it's really interesting to see the differences between Nicodemus and the other unnamed religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees. We had Nicodemus who willingly met with Jesus. That's John chapter 3. He willingly meets with Jesus, he asks Jesus questions, and he listens to Jesus. You have the Pharisees who wouldn't even listen to Jesus. Even when they asked questions to try to trick Jesus, Jesus would then turn the tables back on them and they would just walk away. They wouldn't listen. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with somebody who only listens to no one to talk again. It almost seems like that's what the Pharisees' response to Jesus is. I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk, and then you respond, but I don't really care what you're saying. I'm only going to know when, when I could talk again and throw more insults and accusations at you. On the one hand, again, you have Nicodemus who, who wanted to follow God's law by having a fair treatment of Jesus, showing righteous judgment, being a righteous judge. You have the Pharisees who sought to execute their own judgment. You have Nicodemus who had a willing heart to hear Jesus out to think about his teachings. We see that something must have stirred in their conversation from John chapter 3 because now Nicodemus 
is calling out his fellow Pharisees and Sadducees in defense of Jesus. And on the other hand, you have the Pharisees who have a hardened heart that could not receive Jesus' teachings. And I want to just end with this little application and this little reminder. Right When we share the gospel with others, it's not an if, but, but when, Right as a Christian, we should be sharing the gospel with others. Don't be surprised if you see someone, a side of someone you've never seen before. If you see a hardened heart on display. Don't let that discourage you from stopping and sharing the gospel with other people. Right? We cannot change hearts. I said that before. Only God does that. Only God can take a hardened heart and bring new life into it. Our responsibility is to share the good news and allow God to do the rest. And as we've been saying, the gospel is offensive. Right? We said that last week. The gospel is offensive because it says what? You are a sinner. I am a sinner. The world, we're all sinners who fall short of God's glory, who fall short of His standards. And because of that, what we really deserve, if we ask God, God, give me what I deserve, it's hell because of our sin. But here we have the grace and mercy of God that Jesus Christ came down to die on the cross for our sins. That He reconciles us. He made a way for us to be saved. Through the, he purchased us through His blood. So when we share the gospel, please don't be shocked if someone gets mad at you. But rather, in love and in truth, tell them, right? There is bad news that because sin separates us from God, we deserve hell. But don't stop there. Continue with the good news. But in love, Jesus came to die for us, to take our penalty, our death penalty. And he says, everyone who believes in him will what? Have their thirst quenched will have eternal life, will have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. So my hope and prayer is that we remember that, right? And let that fuel us, let that give us courage and boldness to share the gospel all the more. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this time where we can be reminded of your love for us. Where we can just be reminded that we have a God who pursues us that Jesus Christ came down from heaven to earth and to die for us. We thank you for the continued promises in Jesus Christ as John's Gospel has made it clear that Jesus gives life, that Jesus is the light. But also today we looked at Jesus will satisfy our thirsty souls. In Him there's complete satisfaction. He fills the void that we have. We also see the promise of the Holy Spirit I pray that we remember that we're never alone, that if we are in Christ, we have God dwelling within us. The Holy Spirit comforts us. The Holy Spirit gives us peace. He, he teaches us. The Bible says he, he prays for us. So Lord, I pray that we take comfort in that. If there's anybody here this morning that, that does not know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, I pray that by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, they can cry out to you that they can confess that they are a sinner in need of a Savior and put their faith in Jesus and believe that He died on the cross and three days later He rose again, being victorious over death, and all who believe in Him will have eternal life. I pray for the saints, for those who are in Christ, that we are encouraged by the Spirit this week to go out with boldness and share the Gospel. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your name. Amen.